Today's show is sponsored by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Go to Cufflinks.com slash DVR, get 30% off all Marvel merchandise. Use code ENDGAME30. Looking forward to Avengers Endgame. I'm looking at this stuff right now, and these Thanos glove cufflinks are so cool. And they have the Hulk hands cufflinks, and then they have the Hulk like drawn, and then they have a Hulk that looks like an emoji. They have so much awesome stuff. A Hulk green plaid boys zipper tie. I mean, this is, come on. Cufflinks.com slash DVR. Just take a look at this stuff. It'll make you laugh, put a smile on your face, and be super cool. And it's super high quality stuff. Enhance your look when you step outside in the morning. Go to Cufflinks.com slash DVR. Endgame 30. Do it today. Welcome back to Podcast Winterfell and Daily DVR, the continuing rewatch series brought to you by the DVR Podcast Network. Go to DVRpodcast.com, email us, DVRpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for downloading. I've got a ton of positive feedback about uh, this rewatch series and I've had a lot of fun doing it and we are now on season five I just completed season five of Game of Thrones we've got last night it would be two weeks so 13 days to the premiere of season eight so I've got six and seven ahead of me and because I don't have that extra Monday I've been dropping them on Monday. I'll be dropping season seven uh, before that time. So season six will come next month, next Monday. And then a little bit after that season seven, or maybe I'll get season six done early. I'm not sure. I'm a little behind today. I apologize. This is a delayed release. It's about, about a day late. And um, that is due in part to life and in part to Duke almost making the final four. My wife is a huge Duke fan, and unfortunately, Duke did not win, but our family did spend a good portion of time uh, watching and preparing <laughs> for the Duke game. And uh, I'm not a huge ba- college basketball person. But anytime my wife can be happy and I can see my love smile and have so much joy. She went to Duke. Her mom went to Duke. So they love Duke. We're a Duke family. And uh, Bootaylicious123, who gave us a great review and is also a Duke fan, um, my thoughts go out to you and all other fans. And what a great bunch of games. I'm really a pro football guy. That's kind of the only thing I follow. But um, my wife has brought me into this world, and uh, I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed uh, watching the tournament this year. All right, let's get to season five here. So, when we begin our story of Game of Thrones, it is approximately 17 years after Robert's Rebellion in which Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark, our heroes that we follow throughout season one, led a rebellion against the Targaryens, the Mad King, as well as his son Rhaegar. Rhaegar had supposedly kidnapped and raped Ned's sister, 
We know, of course, that that's not true and that they actually fell in love and that Jon Snow is Rhaegar's son, that Ned, as well as Ned's nephew, that Ned has housed all this time because of the fear that Robert would find out, have him killed as he did uh, with other children and what he wants to do to all Targaryens. And as we begin, that's a little background, as we begin Game of Thrones, what I've effectively, this rewatch has made me kind of reframe the story and the method that this story is told to us. When I was in high school, I had a great uh, history professor. I call him a professor because my high school was like, I probably learned more in high school than I did in college. Not that anything's wrong at Rutgers, go are you, but I went to a very good high school. And uh, Mr. Powers taught us well and about framing things and what framing really means. And when people say um, history is written by the victors, right? Not always true. But oftentimes the victors frame history. And that is the way that we look at things and put them in relation to each other. Uh, how we set the frame, the story, the mise-en-scene, perhaps, even for Game of Thrones, right? We are talking about a visual medium. In this structure, in this framing, in a sense, season one is almost like a prequel. And it is, in fact, the end of Robert's Rebellion, meaning that it is not until season two and Joffrey, well, the end of season one, okay, and Joffrey becomes king, that effectively that rebellion and those people have been usurped by Tywin Lannister, who was the hand to the Mad King. And in many ways... Um, I don't know the full history if I was on with Bubba again and what a great show that was. I hope everyone listened, man. I love that dude. So smart and really made me think about a lot of things. Um, I think kind of my conversations with Bubba and AU and a little bit with Justin, when I jumped on with him and AU are kind of auxiliary parts of this rewatch, uh, series. And, uh, so I don't know the particulars of Tywin's machinations. I know about him, of course, from our story, Game of Thrones, how, you know, he told Jamie, open the gates. I won't, you know, I won't pillage. And then he did. And there seems to me that Tywin, obviously, always coveted power. And he uses this death of Ned uh, the War of the Five Kings, Joffrey becoming king as a way to cement that. And it is a transitional period, a transitional period out of Robert's Rebellion, this Baratheon reign, because we know that, in fact, Joffrey is 100% a Lannister, as is his brother, Tommen, who becomes king. Um, And what we see in this transition is a series of vacuums of power. 
in which Tywin is attempting again and again until his death, and then it's Cersei, to fill this vacuum with himself, right? But the question remains, why was there a vacuum if Tywin was in power? If Tywin was, you know, so it just is the framing of this story to us as we start with Ned going to Winterfell and blah, 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 that we kind of see that's where our story begins. But that's not really where our story begins because so much of season one is spent talking about 17 years ago. And so much of season two and three is the culmination of those Walter Frey, the Bolton, like all these people who are older, right? And what we have now that we're up to season five, right, is John, head of the Night's Watch, Danny, ruler of multiple cities, right? Um, Jamie and Cersei in power, kind of, but we'll talk about that because that's a big thing about where our story progresses. But we, we've now come to this new era. And. W- this is still, though, in many ways, and some of, I think, a frustration that you're meant to feel with season four and five. And even though if you listen to the conversation with Bubba, he explained how they tried to basically compress two books into season five. And these are books that, when released, ran concur- um, they were released concurrently, but run Am I saying it wrong? Okay. It's the same stuff told from a different perspective in both of those books. Those books are not a continuation of the story. So though they were released together, I mean, uh, released one after the other, they ended up telling the same story just from a different perspective up to a certain point, right? And it's not until I think, uh, I think the difference then is when John dies. That's when the books end. That's my understanding. Again, I'm no expert, though I've talked about it enough on this goddamn podcast. I should be. And I will be after these damn shows are over for the prequels. For the prequels! Um, so, that transition from Robert's Rebellion, Lannister rule, and the lack of really what failures the Lannisters were at ruling. Uh, Tywin gets credit. I know people love Tywin, but really he sucked. And Cersei, she sucks. She's dumb. And so is Tywin. They're not dumb. They're, they allow their own carnal needs, wants, desires, their insecurities, their need for power to overwhelm the fact that they could have a peaceful kingdom if they so desired. They are good at um, getting power and dealing a decisive blow, but they are not good at actually ruling. They are terrible at actually ruling. And if anything, again, it's the same thing with Cersei as it was with Tywin. <laughs> if, they, if they had just listened to the Queen of Thorns and said, hey, Let's work together. You know, um, we're, we're, you're, you keep on marrying the damn same Marjorie daughter to each of our sons. This is a persistent thing here. Let's make this work. You know, 
No, because like Tywin, Cersei has to be number one. She's got to make up for her her own personal feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt and self-hatred uh, put upon her by her father, her her society, her culture, her station in life, and perhaps just her, right? We all have it. Um, and you got to invite uh, the devil in <laughs> with, with a man in the... Um, uh, uh, the, uh, the high sparrow who, um, I was just thinking because I thought it was funny when the queen of thorns, sometimes I, th- I pause because like, I, I'm like, have like another voice in my head. That's me telling myself what to say here in this podcast. When the queen of thorns says the high sparrow septum, whatever the hell you call yourself. And I like all these different titles, right. That are in a way obfuscation of responsibility but a generalized sense of overall power, both at the same time, which is something that religion has always been so good at, right? Um, no, you're, you're, it's your, it's you, <laughs> but it's really us. <laughs> um, we're in charge. Uh, do what we say. And um, in this case, this story, not always, of course, um, but this story totally, uh, illustrates that. So the failure of the Lannisters to maintain any type of power only feeds into the overall tension that is the growing threat in the North, which this season transitions is in fact a transition from the politics of the of Westeros, which I call the South because look, I don't know, you know, I just, I consider myself a Northern person. When I watch Game of Thrones, that's just, uh, I don't know. It's kind of very like Celtic too. And it's like, that's what I am. And it just, I've always, so I always say this, I catch myself saying that because I naturally think of myself as like a northerner that's just how i kind of think maybe it's because i'm from jersey too and in my mind i turn that map kind of into it even though it does not really correlate i guess in some ways um but i kind of feel like the north is like the northeast but that's just me i've always i don't think i've ever said that on the pod but i always feel that way inside I guess that self-reflection on my internal monologue led to further reflection. That's what happens when you're on a podcast. You dive, you go into the rabbit hole, and you see where it takes you. And where it's taking me is a vision of this series that a sense of unease, a sense of wandering, um, lack of purpose, lack of future is really what is communicated in seasons four and five. Um, even in Danny hard home is such an amazing, amazing episode of television. And it's not just because of 
the most fantastic zombie fighting, crazy giants, swords, magic scene ever, which I love, which I still say is as exciting as any set piece I've seen in film. I mean, the Mission Impossible really rivals some of the Star Wars rivals, but for the blend of emotion, action, and how it plays into the overall story, how Hard Home itself is not just a transition. Okay, when the Night King raises his arms up like that, and I'm doing it as I speak here, and I feel the power lifting up all the dead, that is not just him lifting up the dead and creating a whole new army out of the people that were just defeated, which is mind-boggling. It is the show saying to us, wake up, up we go. This war of the five kings ground us into the dirt. It was visceral. It was raw. Brother against brother in some sense. People killing each other, fighting for maybe what they don't even understand. Well, guess what? It's time to rise up because you've got one motherfucker to fight. And that's me, the Night King. And it changes dramatically, so dramatically, the purpose of this show. Because that threat, excuse me, which the show obviously starts off with, that's the first thing we see, but which we only come back to five or six times, is now the main purpose of the show. We know without a doubt that the machinations of King's Landing and High Sparrows and Lannisters and Martells and whoever is meaningless. And the reason why, in a sense, it makes sense that the Lannisters couldn't control everything right? It's almost as if this world naturally said, no, don't, no, don't allow this center to hold. We have to keep in flux until we get to the point where we can go forward together as one, as people against this threat. And uh, that doesn't mean that I excuse some of what I think are valid arguments uh, for missteps in these two seasons, especially. Um, Some things that could have been done a lot better and that happens. And again, I'm not going to diss the show too much because I love the show. And I think there's only, I'll say in the, the, to me, the Theon stuff and Ramsey in general, anything connected to the Boltons past the red wedding was not great, except for the times when Ramsey showed that he was much more than what the show allowed him to be. And I did not think that I would be sitting here arguing that Ramsey is a much better character than he was shown to be. 
And that is because of what he accomplishes, right? He is able to outsmart and defeat a plethora of enemies until the end, which I'll get to in season six, but you got to wait a week for that. (laughs) Uh, Become a Bolton. And that, in that sense, his story and the, and his relationship peripherally with his father is very interesting. But when you drill down into it, it's incredibly repetitive. And what occurs with both Theon and Sansa are, is like torture porn. And I'm not into that. I'm just not, that's not my thing. Um, And we could go into, of course, the thing with Sansa. It it seems like they were trying to set that up. But then what we get is really just this Brienne kind of thing trying to get her. And so they station Brienne over there. And so she's there for when Stannis gets there. And it becomes a little bit of machinations this season. And I wasn't that thrilled with it. I must admit, I missed some of the um, kind of team-ups. We had that a little bit with Bronn and Jamie going to Dorne. Enjoyable, but still kind of silly. This was not my favorite season. And I'm not a, always a ranker, though we end up doing it. And I'm always on a thing called the film list. Uh, but I, this is not my favorite season, and it might be my least favorite season, but I wanted to start out with the framing uh, debate first to be optimistic in a sense and try to look at how this fits into it. And if you do see this season as almost, in a sense, purposefully difficult, it does kind of work. Um, because the story is at that time. And when you see what happens in hard home, let's just talk about it. Not only the night King lifting the arms and changing the story, but Tyrion, like 100% in the first sentence, helping ensconcing and giving Danny a direction that she had not had for two seasons. I mean, they spent what half a season of Danny sending Jorah away <laughs> and then Jorah coming back and then Jorah coming back again. And that being a big thing each time it happened, you know, I mean, there is all the sons of the harpy stuff. Um, and that is, I, I actually kind of like that a bit more this time around And just watching not, I wasn't, one thing that's interesting to me is, though there is this anticipation, this lack of forward momentum in Westeros, in Danny, there is a kind of a lot of forward momentum, actually, where she is constantly learning and being challenged and having different people, whether it's Selmy or Jorah or Tyrion enter her sphere and challenge her in regard to her father and her family and her legacy and her dragons and who she is. And um, though I always want to trip to Valeria 
on a dragon where Danny runs into like some secret people who tell her secrets and we learn about stuff, which I always wanted to happen, but it didn't happen. Maybe it'll happen in season eight. Um, I do feel that I enjoy Danny's stuff and felt that momentum more so in Westeros where I still feel season five has a lot of that walking around Arya and the Hound through the wasteland, Stannis saying it's a burned world. Um, the rubble of the, of the uh, war of the five Kings and, and, and what that trauma that I spoke of has done to these people. And especially when you see who is in charge and what happens in season five, especially with Cersei, who is like, trauma central like talk about needing some therapy here and um man she just what mistakes cersei makes in the name of her own grandeur and i mean then again i say hail cersei because now she's the mad queen but there's oh man Look, fool me once, it's called uh, <laughs> Blackwater. Fool me twice, the set blows up. Fool me three times, the whole damn city's going up in wildfire. Um, I know people say it ain't going to happen again, but man, is there not so much stuff in season five. And I know it's probably foreshadowing for her blowing up um, everybody else there at the set, but I think there's a lot more than that because especially in her walk of shame, especially in that where you just see her blood drag through the entire city. She bled for that city and, and what she becomes after that is, it's really fascinating. Um, Cersei thinks that Marjorie is the blonde. This is how we, because we start, of course, with this flashback. And that she will usurp her power. And in an effort to do that, she invites the High Sparrow to rearm the Faith Militant because she knows of the indiscretions of Marjorie's brother and that Marjorie knows herself. Thinking she's above it all, she has the power. She even pretends like she's her father when the Queen of Thorns finally shows up writing the letters, which she's not. And it's amazing how quickly the high sparrow takes over the entire place. <laughs> it's amazing. And I didn't get that in other rewatches and I didn't give him enough credit because not only is the actor amazing and his and the way he immediately, he always kind of starts every conversation the same way and lets, and lets the other person show where they're taking it. 
oh yes, you know, and he'll be he'll be so pious. Uh, but then when Cersei turns, he he's like, oh, you mean you thought we were going to have an evil conversation? We're really going to have an evil conversation. <laughs> like he just takes it. He just acts where she and Tommen do not. And it was obvious from the way Tywin and Cersei allowed Joffrey to behave that this was not going to go well. And once it's like three episodes and the dude takes over, Tywin's Red Wedding took a whole season or seasons to, to and 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 years of history of families and promises and you get this and I get that and letters and work to achieve what Tywin achieved. And the High Sparrow just sits in a chair and Cersei says, hey, why don't you build an army and take over? And he says, well, I... I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even dream to think of, I, I mean, should I? And Cersei's like, yes, please, please. And by the way, send me to jail, beat me, then make me walk naked through the streets while they throw shit and blood and crap and fruit and things at me, please. Oh, well, I mean, I don't. Okay, I okay, I guess. I guess I could do that. If you really want me to, I could do that. And that's what happens. And it's absolutely amazing and it's I think it's brilliantly written and I think this whole King's Landing build up is fantastic. I have complaints about this season. I do not have complaints about this. Tommen going into hiding over it. You don't see him for episodes and you feel that where's the king all this time. We've been talking about the king, the king, the king, Joffrey's the king. The king is in charge. Even Tywin can't do anything because of the king. And then guess what? Somebody comes in and says, no, he doesn't matter. And he doesn't. It's that, that quickly. He doesn't matter. And all the talk of, uh, bastards and succession and, and history is all out the window and it's utterly meaningless. Why? Because this one man has positioned himself into this place of power. And I wonder of, of the prequel story of the high sparrow, because when he's threatened by the queen of thorns, right? When our wheat isn't and you're starving. And he says, who do you think is in the fields? Lady that out. She's gone. The tough one takes her out like that. The whole conversation. She tries to get tough and he says, you speak to me like, okay. He gets right down in the mud with her. And really he is, everyone says that brands can be the night King. I think the high sparrows, the night King, <laughs> because I just was kind of astonished that he doesn't have more of a kind of badass rep in the Game of Thrones world because he is a cold ass killer. He takes everyone out faster than anyone else did it. When I'm reading through these books or listening to the Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood, 
I'm like, yo, in the history, in these histories, the high sparrow, he just was like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Now, obviously it didn't really turn out in the end. He wasn't able to maintain this because he himself, um, didn't have all the facts and he didn't understand Cersei and her ability to go all out and take it, actually kind of learn from him and take it to that next level or really do what she always had inside herself and pull off her green wedding. And uh, that was the end. But for now, at the end of season five, He's a badass. He is a badass. And all because Cersei couldn't say, okay, Marjorie, act tough in front of the ladies in waiting. That's what a queen does. And But you know what? Tommen's going to come back to mommy. I have faith in that because she didn't. Everybody talks about the only thing Cersei has is love for her children. Bullshit. Cersei doesn't love her children. Trust me, I'm a parent. Cersei does not love her children. She has no love for those kids. She doesn't even know what love is. Cersei has a love for nothing. She is devoid of love. And again, was it, you know, you ask it with all characters in a story, as I will for the Night King too, and I hope to find out, though Bubba, as Bubba said, if... He's just a guy killing everybody. He'd be okay. But I kind of want to know the deal. I want to know about his parents. Uh, (laughs) I want to sit down and have a therapy session. And with Cersei, there's a lot to unpack. Um, But, you know, there's no doubt that uh, what we see in this season, it could have been so much different. It could have been. But that's not who these people are. And that's not that the, that's not what this world is, and it, it wouldn't be the drama that we have come to love if it was that as well. Um, but what a fantastic season, because it just builds. And by the time I got to Hard Home and kind of saw the transitions that happen in it, both in Westeros and Essos, the whole world here is really hard home is it's kind of like red wedding and then hard home, like these huge transitional Ned's dead red wedding hard home. And I think that for me, I really do believe that because everything changes and you see that of course, that's also the episode where Cersei decides she's going to, It's not when she does it and has the shame and everything, but it's the transition to where she kind of decides, I'm going to give in to this and I'm going to repent and blah, 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 which leads to the walk of shame, which I forgot, completely forgot that we go right from the walk of shame to Jon Snow getting killed. What a finale. This season really saves the best for last, really, in so many ways. And there's a lot more to talk about, too. I'll kind of go through my notes. This is just stream of consciousness now. I'm going to 
take a take a quick glance at my notes because I'm sure I'm going to forget to talk about some stuff. Um, but that was just a one-two punch that I guess was so jarring. You forget that those two iconic scenes take place back to back, and that the and that Cersei's walk of shame. There's no buildup to it. There's like there's there's really nothing. It's just like she kind of you see in the episode before, and it's subtle. Okay, she's gonna kind of do that. Then that this episode happened. She's getting the whole. She's having different people visit her. Right, Kyburn. She's having people visit her. Uncle Kevin won't come. Tommen. Nobody's the people she wants aren't coming. Just people she doesn't want. And she realizes she's gonna have to do this. And um, then he says, "But first, you have to repent." She says, "I can go back to the Red Seven. Oh yes, and we think, okay, cool. He says, "But oh no, but first you have to." You have to repent. You have to do your penance, though. Oh, what's that? Then they bathe her, and then they put the, but then they cut her hair, and then they put the thing back on her, and then they stand her up, and he starts talking about she stands before you, and everyone's looking at her. And again, don't let's not forget the season opens with her work with her pulling right down under that same steps to go to Tywin's funeral, right? And it ends with her going down. Now look what she is, right? All right, little break here. Thanks for listening to me talk about season five of Game of Thrones. Don't forget, we will be giving away a prize from cufflinks.com every week to a random caller of our live fan call-in. That's going to be Monday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern. I believe I believe DJ made it 10 p.m. now. Cufflinks.com slash DVR. We're going to be giving away stuff. And if you go now, use code ENDGAME30 to get 30% off Marvel merchandise. I was telling you about the Hulk stuff. Now I'm looking at the Iron Man, the Ant-Man. Oh, Iron Man Arc Reactor Cufflinks. Those are dope. And look at... Oh, the 3D Iron Man cufflinks, it's not flat. It's like his whole face. That is really cool. Emoji, the ties are amazing. There's like pages and pages of awesome stuff. Cufflinks.com slash DVR and game 30. Back to the show. So he brings her out. He stands her up there. And... She doesn't know what's really happening, it doesn't look like. She's been in this cell, beaten, yelled at, humiliated. Her entire world has been turned upside down. The thing she has always not even had to question, which is her essence of being greater than everyone else. A Lannister has been totally inverted. And then they strip her naked and walk her through that city. And it is one of the most amazing scenes. Granted, upon rewatch, you can see the CGI in the face and stuff. You can see it. And some of it's not great. But maybe I've seen this scene 12 times or something. 
I did try to watch it all the way through this time, which some other times I haven't because it's, it is very hard to watch. And that's the greatness of this show. Just like I was talking about the Sansa stuff earlier, this scene is uncomfortable and the Sansa stuff is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to talk about. Um, I don't know what the answers are. I know how it makes me feel. And I know what it makes me think about. And it makes me think about the way that societies, people treat women, the male gaze and the challenges that come with that. But I don't know them. I am a man. But as a human being, if I imagine myself as Cersei walking there naked and I mean, even if, if I, uh, to imagine I too was not the queen mother or queen regent or former queen too, for a very long time, um, how I would feel, it makes you think of all that stuff. So all these things I mentioned, I don't, I have to examine that. And that's what this scene does. And that's what in many ways I think this season did. I think this season is in a way a reckoning, a reckoning of in order for things to fall into place, they need to sometimes be sharpened or honed or pushed or forced. And that's what's happening in this world. And what Cersei will become as a result of this event is something altogether different than she once was. Because though she had the fire, she obviously thought she could control things in one way that she couldn't. Because even as the country is thrown into upheaval and the queen is in jail and her brother and all of her alliances are in question. She's laughing at Marjorie. It's amazing. She thinks she's won. It's just absolutely crazy. You know, I, I try to make a, a comparison or kind of a mirror between the Night King and Cersei in the way that the Night King uses the dead to become his army and Cersei turns everybody into the dead into like against her, you know, it's kind of like the opposite. He takes, he takes total advantage and she just totally messed everything up and she is like her father. Uh, you know, there's the question of is, you know, People said, you know, trying to be her dad with writing the letters. And maybe in that sense, she wasn't. But in the end, she's like Tywin in that for all the machinations until she reaches this point, right? Which for all intents and purposes is everything but death for her, right? Um, and she's going to, exp- that's why I think when Tommen dies and she just keeps it rolling, is this incident here. And it was a amazingly shot 
piece too. I haven't mentioned too much of the cinematography through this season. And there was some great examples of that and so much foreshadowing in um, blocking and framing things like Jamie sitting next to a window while he talks about Tommen and then it cuts right to Tom. They did a lot of visual foreshadowing stuff this season, which was really interesting. Um, but Cersei's journey was incredible and I can't wait for season six. Um, this was my down season. Gotta admit it. It was, it's probably my least favorite season and I kind of knew that coming in and I kind of still feel that way, but I understand it better. And I saw things that I enjoyed. Let's talk a little bit about Arya. This is 100% from beginning to end Arya's journey to become a faceless person. And I feel like it's great. I loved it. I really have very little to complain about on Arya's journey this season. Next season, I'll probably have some complaints. But I kind of feel like if it had ended here and she somehow got back to Westeros or went on another journey, we it would have been okay. Because when I think about what happens next to her, it's not that much and it's not that good. And they didn't even really need to include a lot of it. There's some that's great because I love Arya. And as I talked about with Bubba 2 in the last podcast, I think her journey has been so straightforward and continues to be. And I love this stuff. You know, I'm a sucker for the Zen shit, sit out front the temple door for three days. I love that. I love the way that she has to work her way in. I love the waif. Uh, Yakin is the man. He just, I love that actor. Let's not even forget that another part of Hard Home is Oysters, Clams, and Cockles, baby, that originates in that episode. Break it down. Oysters, Clams, and Cockles. What a, that whole thing is great. Killing Sir Marin Trent. Um, then she's blinded at the end. And we get into next season. And I know what happens because it's closer in time. It's so fresh in my memory. But um, I just, I'm a little, I know it's, I'm trying to clean, I'm trying to cleanse myself and go in without, I know that coming. And I was able to do that this season, but this is where it gets dicey for me. Though I was sitting on a park bench talking to some uh, parents of uh, Lachlan, my son's uh, friends, and they're fans of the Game of the Thrones they had some interesting stuff to say about Arya and the Waif that maybe I'm going to look at. It's going to make season six a little more fun for me. I'll share that with you on the season six podcast, see if it comes to fruition. So shout out to them. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all of it. And I love the becoming no one and losing herself. You know, I'm a big fan of that stuff. That's my jam. So, 
that's where I'm at. And I loved it. And I love, she is such a great actress. Macy, amazing little vignettes of scenes. I love how it's written. I think the pacing is really good. We drop in. She does a little something. We get more at the end. We get more towards hard home and the finale because that's the whole oysters clams thrown at away to take Sir Marin Trent and how we see that she'll never truly be able to let go of herself, which I think is okay. And I think that they always knew. Um, but because there's a larger thing going on here, I think with the faceless men and, and Arya's journey. Um, but I don't know. I don't have a super lot to say about Arya because I just loved it. (laughs) I think it was fun. And if you remember, it's just a lot of training and learning. And I wish they would have at some point told us a little bit more of the secrets of, what those, um, you know, what were the original faceless men were escaped slaves, right? From like Valeria or something. And there's some magic they found. So I would have liked to get into that a little bit more because I think that overall thematically for all of our stories to touch on the magic in some way is beneficial, And you see really kind of like in Sansa, I'm trying to think in Arya, I mean, Arya sees obviously um, uh, the whole Thoros of Mir stuff happen. So she knows about that and she's seen that magic. But I think I would have, and there's obviously a lot, there's, there's gotta be some kind of magic with the faceless men, but I would have caught, I mean, we all, you know, it's like lost and the. Dharma initiative. Like I always say, I would have liked to have like a whole season just talking about the time travel stuff. Um, but that's, wasn't the show. And that was, that's what we get here. But in general, I loved it. Jon Snow. This is the season of Jon Snow, his rise, his fall, his epic death. Ollie, you ate you, Ollie. For the watch. Crazy stuff. And also, I loved it. I think that the progression here of John's character, the buildup of Alistair and Sam and Mary and Pippin and all the other characters and Jano Slint's head getting cut off. There's a progression here, Stannis arriving at Winterfell, um, what John, how John reacts to that, going to Hardhome, the decision to let the wildlings through the gate, which doesn't happen until the last episode that John is killed, right? They come back. After Hard Home, um, well, no, that happens in nine, and then he's killed in ten. Right, Hard Home's eight. It's an amazing storytelling buildup. I really enjoyed it. The character of Jon Snow grows leaps and bounds, 
ever since it's all owed to Egret. Okay, he had to meet a ginger to get the fire in his life. He had to get some just stop being a sword bro and get up on it, Jon Snow. Oh. Woo, look at that. <laughs> I got to keep that in the podcast. What the heck? Yeah, let's take it live in the podcast. Hello. Get up on it, Jon Snow. That was a telephone solicitor, by the way. Glad those have disappeared with cell phones. I used to be a telephone solicitor. <laughs> Dial America. I used to work for Dial America. I used to sell magazines for the Special Olympics. Uh, I think it was like 10% went to the Special Olympics. 10% after the cost. So it was like a cent. All right, back to it. Anyway, Jon Snow gets it together this season. He becomes a leader. He becomes confident in himself. He becomes confident in his mission, which is to evangelize the coming night and the winter and what's coming from the north, the White Walkers, the threat. He has the chance to become legitimized by Stannis and he turns it down. He has the chance to be named the head of the Night's Watch, and he accepts. His priorities are like Ned, like he was brought up. His priorities are on honor and his word, and to living, breathing humankind. And the death of Egret has taught him in a very real way the fallacies and the heartlessness of war, the death of his brother too, his family, he can't do anything about it. And he sees that in the wildlings. He sees them as humans and wants to help them. Because Egret was one of them, but also because that's the kind of man that he was. And now when challenged, he rises up and takes charge. But he doesn't watch his back. And he takes for granted that his righteousness and that this newfound sense of dramatic purpose will carry the day, and it does not. And the Night's Watch rises up and kills him. And there is plenty, 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 plenty of instances in this and past seasons that lay the groundwork for this. They didn't even need Ollie. They didn't even need him. They didn't need Ollie to get his family wiped out by the Wildings in that crazy scene to shoot Egret, to be trained by John only to shoot Egret, to then be the last one into John's heart for the watch and kill him. They didn't need Ollie to do that. I kind of liked it. I thought it worked because kill the boy. Kill the boy, John Snow. Kill the boy. And the boy died. And the John Snow that wakes up 
in season six is a new person. And I think I'm going to see that in a way that I didn't maybe see before and that I'm seeing now progressively watching this story so close together that I think John's story has been really wonderful. It really has. And I think they've done a great job. And some of the some of the things I see in Sansa and John's story that before turned me off really turn me on now. Um, they intellectually, they really spark a further understanding of how I'm watching the show and what I'm seeing it and what we all bring to it as ourselves. Um, and maybe it's because I just saw John as the hero, you know, and I kind of knew he was going to get there. So I was like, all right, whatever. But seeing it done here and living with it and letting it happen in front of me, um, has really shown me that I really enjoyed it. And I think that all the decisions that John has made to go back to Craster's, right? Um, the wildlings, the decision to go out and and talk with Mance Raider after um, the battle at Castle Black at the wall. And John just goes out there and talks to him. Wow. I really think that they've done a great job of building John up as our hero and to have his story end here, pretend it did. It still would have been a great story. And now when he comes back, there is going to be something different about him. And I want to see that. Uh, and uh, it's just, man, that scene too. Hey, John, so somebody, a writer just came in and they said that they met with your, uh, with your uncle. Really, really. And then he comes, that's Ollie, right? And then he comes down the steps and there's Alistair to meet him. And Alistair, and he says to Alistair, oh, he could be lying. Yes, he, oh, he couldn't. He sees all these guys gathered around. He gets to that mar that uh, grave marker kind of thing. Traitor turns around pushed for the watch. Alistair's first, Ollie's last. And John just doesn't, can't even do anything. Um, and it is very similar to that shot when he wakes up at Winterfell after having all the arrows shot in him. And that's how he'll go out. And it's almost in the same spot, kind of, when he falls off that horse. Uh, not Winterfell, I'm sorry, Castle Black. Um, but after he escapes finally and Egrid shoots him a couple times and the guys are kind of gathered around him. It's a very similarly shot. Not exactly, but similar. And uh, that is a closing and, an, and a beginning. And uh, I, I love this story. Uh, Jamie this season is just really trying to get Cersei to love him by bringing back Marcella from Dorne. And the Dorne stuff is like, it was kind of fun, but it's not much. There's not much to really dig into. And um, when I look for an alternative of what could have been done here... Um, I see um, not much. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't come up with much. Maybe not. Maybe not show it as much. I mean, it was kind of fun. They they did develop some good stuff with Jamie and Marcella towards the end when she admits she knows is his dad. That's her dad, and that's think about it. That's the only time really 
that Jamie was able to look at one of his children and say, you're my child. That's amazing. I mean, I couldn't imagine that. When I think about my son, every day I look at him and I go, I can't believe you're my son. You know, or he goes, yo, you're my dad, you know? Just imagine not having that. And it just shows the, oh, the utter, Jamie and Cersei are messed up psychologically. How did Tyrion even turn out so kind of good, maybe? I don't know. Just they're, What a family. Like if you met the, like if you met Jamie in college, you'd be like, what? <laughs> like you, I can't even hang with that guy, man. You know about his family? That dude's messed up. Like for real. I know maybe everyone hasn't had an evening <laughs> by this guy and his sister and his dad and the mom. Oh, wow. It's a story. Um, so, you know, they didn't really not much with Jamie this season, not much at all. Um, the bronze stuff I loved bronze funny and, uh, Jamie there, you know, Braun actually challenges him that that's his daughter. And he's, I don't want to talk about it. It's like, come on, whatever, dude, you know, everybody knows, right. Uh, but not, not, a not a super great season for Jamie. There's, um, little moments where it becomes obvious that he's just doing everything for Cersei. And of course, she sends Jamie away when the High Sparrow's there, so she doesn't have him to even talk to about what's going on. Not that I know he would have been able to get anything done. Because quite honestly, there was, I remember at the time, oh, if Jamie was there, he wouldn't, wouldn't have let that happen. I don't think that's true. I think Jamie probably would have done whatever Cersei told him to do. And he would have just been walking around in a bunch of scenes in the background saying, how are we letting this happen? You know? Um, but we may have gotten a little bit more insight into Cersei's state of mind. But um, not, I don't, it just shows their ineptitude in general. I talked about Danny a bit. Um this was an interesting season where it really starts off with um, Danny still kind of trying to learn to be a queen. And the push and pull of her Targaryen fire blood and her history and her father as is illustrated in an early conversation with Selmy um, and her constant struggle kind of walking dead style, right? Do we kill the enemy? Do we try to integrate them? Do we make peace with them at a distance? What do I do? And really she falters and goes back and forth, but not in a way that is entirely inept she does make certain stands. She burns a couple guys in front of him. Eh, it doesn't really work. We're going to let the fighting. Eh, that doesn't really work because the point is they don't want to be ruled by an outside person. That's the end result, right? The thing that she needed to hear from Tyrion when he finally arrived, which is, um, uh, Khaleesi, you, you you want to rule a land that you've never even stepped foot in. 
and yet you can't understand why the people here <laughs> don't, want, don't want you. You know, like it's the same thing. Um, you keep on calling Westeros your home, but uh, you know nothing of it. And you know nothing of this land, and you try to formulate it into your culture, your understanding, instead of accepting it as it is and listening to the people of what kind of government or system would be most acceptable, palatable, recognizable to them. Um, and that's a lesson she has to learn. And, you know, we got the Grey Worm in Masande, Selmy dies, sad. I love that character. I wish he would have stayed longer. Because I think I would have liked to see a lot more speeches with him, um, not Jorah Friendzone trying to kind of, he's always angling Jorah. Descending Jorah away, the back, the forth. Jorah in, uh, in, in uh, Valeria with, with Tyrion and that whole thing is, I love it. I love it, love it, love that. I just love that scene. Then they get the slavers. That's kind of fun. Um, you know. It's perhaps slightly, you know, hey, if you become a fighter, you might see the queen. Or the first two times you ever do it, you'll be right in front of the queen. How about that, Jorah? <laughs> it wasn't very tough. Didn't really need to rise in the ranks. He kind of just showed up twice and got exactly what he wanted. Uh, though the fight scenes were kind of cool, but the last fight scene when the dragon lands... Not that great. Um, I didn't remember how I remembered it. This one I did just, oh, this is happening now. And um, not that great. A lot of standing around. A lot of people like killing everybody near them until they get near a major character. It reminded me a bit of a foreshadowing to when our um, Magnificent Seven goes across the wall to get the white for Cersei and they're trapped. And there's a lot of actually foreshadowing to that in this scene. If you see it with the spears and the way it's shot and the way it's the circle is done. Um, the effects in this are great. Wow. That is the best a dragon ever looked and the air and it, the fire seamless, wonderful, absolutely amazing. Um, could have borrowed a little bit of that for Cersei's face, but you got away with the emotion on Cersei, so you didn't need it. This, the action people look for that. Uh, but that was a little weak. Danny is whisked off at the end of the season, just when Tyrion has arrived, but she's going to bring the Dothraki back with her, right? So, or should I say, they all will. Uh, and that's awesome. I can't wait to see that. See, I'm really looking forward to season six, but this story, this season for Danny, um, I wasn't as frustrated as I was in season four. I think I liked it more. Um, there was a little bit more to do with the other characters. Um, I liked the indecision this time because I think she does have to learn to rule. And in essence, let's think about it this way, folks. Did Danny really need to learn how to be a queen to be, defeat the White Walkers? Like, is she even going to live? So would it not have been advantageous for Danny actually just to have raised hell across Essos, killing everybody in her path, 
and honing her craft at being a cold-blooded queen. We're at the same time freeing the slaves, but other ways just wreaking havoc. That may have, you know, it may have worked out better for her because by the time she gets to Westeros, she doesn't really have, is she really going to have to do, or as we're seeing in this final season, we saw in season seven, um, she really going to have to do that much of the politicking that Tyrion's talking about. I mean, a little, I guess, but it's really just about fighting the white walkers, you know, and Cersei's nuts. So it's not like this or that person is really in the end. What I'm trying to say is Tyrion helps her with that. And he helps her with that. The stuff that happened before he got there is really growing pains in a way. And then Tyrion kind of solidifies it and really makes the story have appear to be having a more linear path. But then she takes it back again when the Dothraki come, which shows why she is the queen. And Danny is so, and in the end, I don't think a lot of her choices that were that wrong. I think she was trying and she tried certain different ways. And I think that actually shows a good ruler. So I was a little bit more impressed with Danny this season. I must admit, you know, don't at me as they say, or do who cares? I like to talk. Uh, I think it was a little bit more interesting. All right, uh, let me check my notes, but I think that's all I got. One thing I didn't talk about was just kind of hone in on Stannis and Melisandre, the death of Shireen, the suicide of Stannis's wife, the troops leave, the Red Lady takes off, it's all over, Brienne kills him at a tree. Um... For me, I had mixed feelings about all of this. I think that it's frustrating because it's a frustrating story. I think it is well told. And Stannis's struggles here, he just kind of gets stuck. And that's something that does happen. And the choice he makes to sacrifice his daughter, which may have let the snow melt, but turned off so many of his men that they absconded half of them or more. And they took all the horses and then he still decides to fight. It's just a sad story. It's depressing, but I do think that it's well told. The end is what is a little disappointing to me because that whole battle is such a afterthought. Sansa watching it out the towers of Winterfell. Ramsay um, really just saying, oh, you think you're going to attack the uh, castle? Oh, no, we're just going to come out and decimate you, which was a power move. Um, again, Ramsay could have been a better character. You know, we'll see a little bit. I think he broadens a little bit maybe in season six, but I don't know. Little one note, Ramzo. No Joffrey. No first of his name in my book, babe. Nope. Joffrey's still the best villain. Um, but Stannis 
makes a series of horribly wrong choices in the name of his own power, much like Cersei. He gives in. He gives in to what he doesn't understand only for, with the promise of power, only with only faith. A man who is otherwise sticks to the rules, right? Goes against himself and it ends in his death. And Brienne killing him is maybe good for Brienne's character. Brienne just kind of pops up places this season. She's a popper-upper. They kind of do that in the next season too. They did a little in season four, but they had it a little bit. I think it was a little more interesting. Brienne and Pod just popping up. Oh, hey, look, there's Pod. Oh, they just happen to be where everything's happening. Oh, and then something else is happening too. Okay, they're involved in four storylines now. Uh, <laughs> and... uh I would have rather seen Ramsey do this. That was why there, this battle was really a, because we're heading to the uh, battle of the bastards and uh, that's the real battle. And the whole um, idea that Littlefinger had here that he was going to get involved with this and come in and take the, but well, there wasn't much, (laughs) they didn't decimate each other. You know, um, it was such a decisive victory that all of Littlefinger's plotting, which by the way, let me digress before I finish with, let me just finish with Stannis. I think it was a good story and I think it had an end that was appropriate for the character choosing the end with Shireen, but the death was not satisfying to me. But it was a death. And the fact that it wasn't satisfying and that it was Brienne that killed him, the, the basically kind of the beginning of his choice to use that magic like that, not really, but outside in the larger war, um, made sense. Littlefinger. And then I'm out. In the books, they have those POVs, and people often say, that person doesn't even have a POV. I don't know if Littlefinger has a POV. I'm not sure. But this season could have used that. I think that the trying to keep the mystery around Littlefinger with Lysa Aaron, does he, what's he really doing? You know, but we kind of really know what he's doing, and then he kills her, and then Sansa stands up for him. The whole journey that Sansa and Littlefinger go on here could have been aided by more knowing more of what Littlefinger's plans were. Because this season is the culmination of his plans. This story begins for us because of John Aaron's death, which Littlefinger caused. It was Littlefinger who did this. Now, he has teamed up with different people and factions, mainly Queen of Thorns, through this to kill Joffrey, and they speak of it. Much of the intrigue, unlike Varys, who we still are kind of questioning, even though he says he's always for the Targaryen restoration, we can understand why they both had to make contradictory choices in front of us in order to maintain their true intent, which is, I think, for Varys is supposed to be the ultimate protector and Littlefinger is supposed to be the ultimate selfish person, right? And 
in many ways, Littlefinger is, and this season shows that. And that's perhaps why we don't ever get to know really what's going on. And by the time uh, we could know more, which is getting into the next season, we'll talk about what I'll talk about maybe Littlefinger's whole arc when he bites it. But for now, this season was so much of a culmination of all of these plans that he had laid out. And this grand plan he had now that somehow he was going to play the Boltons against uh, the Lannisters, become the Warden of the North, then then the Vale too, then team with other, maybe team with Queen of Thorns, take out Cersei, and then somehow, what, he marries Sansa at some point, or then he marries Marjorie and becomes the king? I don't know. I don't. I don't know what his secondary plan there was, but all these machinations that he did, um, and you see what happens is you can't control the chaos and chaos is a ladder, he says, and he thinks he can climb it. But you know what? The thing about chaos is sometimes you're climbing that ladder and you put your foot down and there's no ladder anymore right? (laughs) because it's interdimensional. And your foot went right through it and you fall and you die. And that's what's going to happen to Littlefinger. And um, he can't control the chaos. And what he unspooled has more far-ranging consequences than he understands because there are variables that he's not even aware of. And there are variables that he has no connection to. And his reach does not go as far as he believes it to go, though it is obviously very powerful. And like Tywin, and like so many of these people, it's their own selfish nature that will do them in in the end. Like Stannis too. Like Stannis too, who uh, kills his own kid to get the snow to melt. It's pretty messed up. <laughs> all right. That's all I got for season five. It went a little bit longer than I thought I would. I'll edit this posting it a bit late today. Apologize for that. Life is as it is, but I hope you do enjoy it. I will be back on daily DVR on Wednesday, talking some news, no GOT, just good stuff. Next week we go full-time GOT, baby. I'm still going to try to drop in with some news, but There's going to be a lot of Game of Thrones because we're getting close to it. I'm getting excited. I'm excited to start season six. I'm sure I missed some stuff here, but no, I'll pick it back up. I think last episode, I like went through my notes. I didn't do that this time. I just wanted to go back to to chatting about it, though. um, It's fun either way. And whatever thoughts, ideas that you have that you want to email uh, I would be more than happy to hear from you. And I'm looking through my emails now because last episode I did get an email from, wait, let me go. I went, I went too far ahead. Uh, it was Sandra. So Sandra sent me an email and I wanted to shout her out because, um, she said, Hey, Axel, appreciate your time and effort. Just a bit of info on the character Locke. Remember, I questioned this. First, he was a show-only character taking the place of Vargo Hote in the books. 
Locke was invented as a bannerman of Roos Bolton and considered to be Roos's best hunter. When Roos found out that Bran and Rickon were still alive, he sent Locke to the wall to discover if the young Stark boys were being hidden there by John. And if so, then he was instructed to kill them. That's the reason he volunteered to go beyond the wall with John to deal with the mess of Crasters. As to any affiliation with Slint, there was none that I'm aware of unless there was an off-screen conversation. Hope that helps. Thank you, Sandy, very much. I think what I mistook was Slint saying to Alistair, maybe they'll take him out, right? And then them not knowing that that other plot had been uh, set forth by Roos. So it was my mistake. And thank you, Sandy, for sending that email in. That makes me understand it better. And I like that writing. I like that, that Slint and Alistair saw something was up. John wanted to go here and they say, well, it's a, why not? Let him go to a dangerous situation. Maybe, and they didn't there. Not only was he going to go to this opposing force of Night's Watch who had killed uh, the former commander, but Locke was in on this too. And I mistook that for being as one thing. Uh, so thank you for that. And again, dvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any other questions or comments, uh, this was a tough season. Uh, and you know, when you think back on our podcast, this was a tough podcast time for us. Now that I'm and over talking about it, I'll mention this part kind of a little bit more. And that was that, remember that Matt left podcast Winterfell after um, the uh, Ramsey and Sansa scenes. And we were doing podcasts, uh, what we, I guess, little fell, and then we had changed it to small council. But anyway, it was this episode and after that we started really covering Game of Thrones more. And um, I remember, not more, we were covering it anyway, but Matt wasn't doing it anymore. So we all felt like we kind of had to pick up, pick it up a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, so I kind of remember this episode, that episode and this season, uh, as a little bit more life stressful <laughs> too. So it was a little bit more life stress, but season six was a blast. So we had so much fun and I'm going to have a lot of fun watching that. Cause I have a feeling that I'm going to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, though, though I'm sure there's some things I'll think could be better, but we all have that right. Anyway. Once again, I'll say goodbye for the 20th time as I always delay because I love being with all of you. Thank you so much for listening. Peace.